Welcome back to Euangelion, Interpreting Scripture and Life. As we move into the third chapter of Galatians, having reviewed the central thesis statement of Galatians, the notion that justification, what I'm describing as this movement from death to life in which someone's relationship with God is established, uh, happens under the auspices of faith. There is one more component to this um, transition, which Paul moves into now, and it becomes a dominant theme in the rest of Galatians. Galatians 2 ends with Paul making the statement that Jesus' death would have been pointless if righteousness came through the law. Of course, Paul doesn't believe that righteousness came through the law. Um, And of course, for Paul, the death of Jesus is absolutely central. And hence, Galatians 3 verse 1 reads, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Jesus was absolutely crucified, and this is absolutely central, and the Galatian Gentiles know this. And so, Um, The move straight into um, a a sentence about the crucifixion uh, is is, uh, meaningful here. But then comes an important transitional verse in verse 2, which we'll come to in a moment. First of all, there is some discussion about what Paul means by publicly portrayed as crucified. The, The Greek simply means written up before. Uh, Now that, in the minds of some commentators, refers to the plaque that was um, affixed to the cross when Jesus was crucified. Uh, There's no evidence that Paul knew specifically of that um, plaque, although it was commonplace to affix a plaque with the charges of a crucified victim. Perhaps in the two weeks that he spent with Peter that he mentions in Galatians 2, that that's one of the things they talked about. That's certainly possible. Richard Hayes has argued that uh, the term actually refers to the prediction of Christ in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, Jesus Christ was written up before in the scriptures. It's a novel interpretation and Whilst I certainly think Paul did believe that, I don't think that's what he means here. I simply think Paul is reiterating that Jesus has been crucified, and this is something that they know from Paul's gospel. Uh, I think the imagery of him being publicly portrayed as crucified before their eyes is simply Paul's way of underlining the importance of the crucifixion and the fact that the Galatians are conscious of that importance. Now, he's clearly irritated with the Galatians at this point, which is why he calls them um, foolish. But then asks them, who has bewitched you? Now, this, again, is is an interesting um, way of uh, expressing himself. Uh, The Greek word that's translated bewitched actually is the Greek verb baskino, which only appears here in the entire New Testament. And many translators actually render the text, you foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil eye on you. In the ancient world, the evil eye was believed by many, and it was feared by many, to be the ability to cast a spell on someone or to curse someone 
simply by looking at them in a particular kind of way. Now, some interpreters suggest that Paul's opponents may well have actually bewitched the Galatians. In other words, cast a spell on them. Um, I don't think we need to necessarily go down that line, although, again, it's it's a novel reading. But it's possible that Paul is asking the question rhetorically, who has cast an evil eye on you? Who has in some way shipwrecked your faith and caused you to uh, question um, justification uh, coming solely by faith? Who's bewitched you to think that the death of Jesus is somehow uh, minimized by your embracing of the law? So there could be an evil eye uh, motif floating about here. Um, But either way, I think it's meant rhetorically. Even if Paul does have the evil eye in mind here, um, I think it's meant rhetorically. Uh, It's possible that Paul's opponents felt a sense of jealousy, and that's normally was the, the catalyst for the evil eye. It was the jealousy of a person who... Uh, wanted to cast a spell on someone, um, normally it would be something like a spurned lover casting an evil eye uh, on the person who would run off with their former flame. Um, but jealousy was usually the grounds for evil, evil eye. So to this transitional passage in verse 2, now Charles Cosgrove in his uh, wonderful book, The Cross and the Spirit, which is all about the theology of Galatians, says that this is really where readers ought to join the conversation, quote unquote. And the reason he says that is because Paul makes this emphatic statement. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. And the one thing Paul wants to learn, according to verse 2, is did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by hearing with faith. The rest of the passage reads like this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Well, having just described how he himself was co-crucified with Christ, having died to the law and been made alive in this new way on the basis of Christ, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, and having argued that if righteousness could come from the law, then Christ's death was needless in 2.21, Paul moves almost seamlessly into a question about how the spirit is received. This is the one thing Paul wants to know. Now, is it by works of the law or is it by what he calls the hearing with faith? And I think there's nothing uh, tremendously difficult about that phrase. It's slightly awkward in Greek, but what it means, I think, is fairly straightforward in the sense that he's asking, did you receive the spirit by receiving the gospel with faith? Now, this is interesting because... Paul has only just told us in Galatians 2.16 that a person is not justified by the works of the law. And here he's asking if people receive the spirit by works of the law. And of course, how is it that Paul says that someone is justified? Well, it's by faith. 
And the question again he asks here is, did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Clearly then for Paul, receiving the Spirit and being justified are two very closely related events. Indeed, they are two events which it seems uh, happen under the same dynamic influence. To be justified is, as we've suggested, a movement from death to life uh, by which someone enters into right relation with God, but at the same time receives the Spirit. The two things are coterminous. They are two, um, not synonymous events, but events which certainly seem to happen at the same time. That is going to become critically important in a little while. And so he asks them, are you so foolish? Now that you've begun with the Spirit, begun, presumably begun their life of faith, begun their life of being in Christ. And Paul, um, again, aligns that very closely with the Spirit. And so when he asks, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Presumably, he's asking whether or not they think that obeying the Jewish law somehow makes them more members of God's family than simply having faith. And of course, this is an argument from evidence. Paul talks about how um, God provided the Spirit and worked miracles amongst them. In other words, the Spirit was the evidence that they were in the right standing before God. And this is, again, very uh, typical Jewish thought. Um, It was the presence of the Spirit at Pentecost uh, and the um, miraculous gifts of the Spirit which were displayed at Pentecost, which were evidence of God's activity among the earliest believers in Jerusalem. And in the same way, Paul is suggesting that the miracles of the Spirit done within the Galatian community were evidence of God's presence amongst them. God was powerful amongst them in the Spirit. So in what sense did they think they could be more in the spirit by obeying the law? And that's what Paul means by being perfected by the flesh. Now, this, of course, is difficult language. Paul divides the world, as we saw in Galatians 1.4, into this sort of present evil age. This present evil age is marked by the flesh and a future age, a future age of uh, redemption and glory. Now, If this is the age of the flesh and being perfected by the flesh means obeying the Jewish law, then Paul clearly consigns the law to the age of the flesh. And we'll see this more powerfully when uh, he contrasts the law with the spirit um, in later texts. So the rhetorical move um, is clearly expecting the answer no. having begun with the spirit, could they now be perfected by the flesh? Well, absolutely not. But what about the answer to the key question, the one thing that Paul wants to know? How did they receive the spirit? Well, we haven't looked at the verse. We'll look at that in the next podcast. But Paul makes an extraordinary move here. And he introduces the figure of Abraham, the most important patriarch in Jewish culture and history. Why does he introduce Abraham? Well, that's a slightly longer story. It's one I'll have to go into in the next couple of podcasts. 
Um, and it does pertain to my own particular reading of Galatians. There are a number of reasons why scholars um, intimate or um, speculate that Paul may have introduced Abraham into the argument. J. Louis Martin, J. Louis Martin is one of the people who suspects that Paul's opponents uh, made an argument based on Abraham and that Paul was simply responding to it. Whilst I think that's likely, I would argue very strongly that Paul would of necessity have had to introduce Abraham into these arguments uh, as Abraham um, was promised to be the father of many nations. Uh, and so if Paul is about to make an argument for Gentile induction into the people of God and Judaism's greatest patriarch is said to be the overseer of all nations, Jewish nation, the Jewish nation and Gentile nations, there's no way Paul could have left that out. But there's a specific reason how I think Paul expects this to happen. And that has to do with why he introduces Abraham at this point, why Abraham becomes an answer to the question of whether or not the people receive the spirit um, by the works of the law or by hearing of faith. Now, in some sense, towards the end of Galatians 2, Paul has pretty much already answered the question. Faith must be the key. But there's a reason why faith is the key, and that pertains to why he introduces Abraham into the story. And part of my broader argument and part of my uh, broader research is to reconcile the Abraham story in Romans 4 and the Abraham story in Galatians 3 and 4, which, contrary to most scholars, I would argue is the same story. Uh, and it's, uh, in both cases, a story of resurrection. We'll touch on that a little bit in later podcasts. The presence of the Spirit and the activity of God was all that Paul needed to know that the gospel had taken effect amongst this community. Um, and so obeying Jewish cultic practice was not going to make the presence of God any more powerful. I think we ought to look for the presence of God in our own lives. Um, and we do that, I think, in a multiplicity of ways. God's activity amongst us certainly is miraculous. Uh, and a miracle, there, there are different ways of thinking about miracles, but a miracle doesn't have to necessarily be something which is um, sort of nature bending, although it certainly can be. And I still believe that God's in the business of doing miracles. But you know from your own experience that there have been miraculous things, things which you can't explain any other way, which have happened in your life. And you know that there are coincidences, quote unquote, um, places you've been, people you've met, situations you've found yourself in, which have changed you, which have moved your life in, in um, incredible ways, which have caused you to consider and to reconsider um, the place of your life. And I think it's important to meditate on the presence of God in our lives. So often, I think we try to perfect our own lives um, 
by all sorts of things and through all sorts of means. There are all sorts of things we think we ought to add to the presence of God in our lives in order to feel complete. And the feeling of completeness, this is something which the world um, at large chases in so many ways. People are constantly looking to be whole, to be complete, to be fulfilled. In Paul's mind, the activity of the Spirit was evidence of the presence of God, and nothing could make someone more full or more complete or more ready or more um, able to live life to the full than the presence of God. And for all of us as believers, if the presence of God isn't fulfillment enough, then we are on something of a blind journey. What is really important in your life? What really matters in your life? The presence of God ought to be the be all and end all for a Christian. It is from the presence of God that pretty much everything else in our life takes shape and makes sense. Every relationship, every aspiration has at its beginning the very presence of God and the activity of God in our lives, that reassuring presence that knowledge that we're not alone, that knowledge that we don't simply make decisions based on our whims, but based on our desire to please the person who gave us life in the first place. Meditate on the presence of God and take time to be grateful for the power of God in your life and the way it's manifest itself. We're not so foolish, I hope, having begun with the Spirit and having experienced the presence of God to try to complete our lives with anything other than that great fullness, that great completion that is God himself and the work he's done in Jesus.